Good morning, Sound City. You good? You guys still waking up a little bit? Winter hit. It feels cold outside, I know. Uh, my name is Aaron. If we've not yet had the chance to meet, really glad that you're here. Thankful to have this opportunity to worship Jesus together. As Pastor Shane said, we are going through the book of Hebrews together, uh, looking at this sermon that was written by an anonymous author, uh, but we know it comes from God, and so it's the sermon that God wrote. What we've noticed, though, as we start to get into Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, where we're going to be for the next few weeks, maybe even months, the author of Hebrews quotes extensively from the Old Testament, actually uh, from Psalm 95. He quotes extensively from Psalm 95, and he spends a lot of time explaining what's going on in Psalm 95. And so we thought, hey, this is already a super long sermon series. Why not make it even longer? And let's push pause on Hebrews, and let's spend an entire week looking at Psalm 95 and some of the related passages so that as we go forward these next few weeks, we really have a good understanding of what's behind the teaching that we're reading. So we're going to be in Psalm 95 today. We're also going to use it, uh, Psalm 95 references a couple of other stories that happen in the Old Testament. So we're going to jump around a little bit today, get to practice your, your Bible drills, uh, see if you can find the right place quickly and easily. Also, as we like to do when we read the Psalms, we like to invite everyone to, to join in with us. And so what we're going to do in just a minute, not yet, but I'm going to invite you to stand and we're going to actually read Psalm 95 out loud together as a congregation to hear these words of worship that were written down so many thousands of years ago for us uh, as a church to say them out loud together. And I just want to prep you in verse 8, there's a couple of words you might not know. It's a couple of locations. One of them is Meribah and the other is Massa. So as you're reading along, you've never seen those words before. They're pretty easy. They're not too complicated like sometimes Bible names can be. Meribah and Massa. So I just want you to be uh, prepped ahead of time, ready to say those when we get to it. So with that said, I'd like to invite you all to stand if you would. Psalm 95, we'll have the words up on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Starting in verse one, ready? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work." For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your word, even sometimes when it says things that are hard for us to hear. God, I pray today that we would not have hearts that go astray like we just read in, in this psalm. God, I pray that as the, the words of the song, the, the hymn that we often sing, would you bind our wandering hearts to you? 
that where our hearts want to go astray, uh, we would be bound steadfastly to you. God, we ask that you would do that as an act of your sovereign grace. God, I pray today that you would guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with your truth. I pray each and every one of us would have soft and teachable hearts that we might grow in the grace that you have for us. And I pray that all of our attention would be focused on Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You can go ahead and be seated. In your life, can you tell when you might be going through the motions? I think sometimes we're better at telling when other people are going through the motions than when we're going through the motions. Uh, I'll give you an example. In my own house, uh, we have uh, a million kids, and uh, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. And uh, sometimes I'll ask one of the children to maybe help with something. Hey, would you go help clean up these toys in the living room? Now, the response I'm looking for is, Father, dearest, thank you so much for this amazing opportunity to serve and be a blessing to the family. Both you and mom work so hard, mom especially. You're laying on the couch sometimes. But uh, I want to I help, I want to clean, I want to do this because I just know how much a simple act of service can really mean to the family. And I love you, dad. And can I rub your back? Right, that's what I'm hoping for, right? That's the, that's the response. And I'm sure many of you at times have experienced that with your own children. But what often I get is... <sighs> fine. <laughs> okay, dad. You know, not, not, to, not to dog on my kids too much. Sometimes they're like, okay, yes, dad. And you can tell when there's a sweet attitude or they, they kind of understand, yeah, I'd love to help out. But very often it's, I guess so, if I have to, I, I guess. Do you know when your own heart is in that place? For some of us in our jobs, in our work, we can end up in a place where we're just kind of going through the motions. We're, we're doing the work, we're doing the tasks, but our hearts, if we were honest, aren't genuinely in it. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's in your hobbies. There was a time when you, you did a particular hobby because you really loved it, but now you're just kind of doing it and you don't really like it that much anymore and you sometimes wonder why you're still doing it. For some of you, it's, it's in your relationships, in your friendships. You, you have some people that you still spend time with, but if you're being honest, you, you feel like the, there's distance there. Or most tragically, Sometimes in our walk and our relationship with God, we can settle into a place where we're going through the motions and our heart is not genuinely in it. On the outside, we might look like we're doing the right things, but truly in the depths of our hearts, we've grown cold. Many people in our culture have a mistaken idea that the Christian life is all about doing good things and not doing bad things. Now, granted, God is definitely interested in us not doing bad things, but God is concerned with something much, much more than our actions and our activities. He's concerned with our heart. God cares deeply about our hearts. And God, yes, wants our obedience, but he doesn't want our begrudging obedience. God is interested in our joyful obedience. God is interested in our joyful obedience. When it comes to heartless obedience, that's for the IRS, okay? Right? You can pay your taxes with no joy whatsoever. Good, you need to do that. When it comes to our relationship with God, he is so not interested in that kind of obedience. Amen? My, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, he says, joy is the serious business of heaven. God is deeply concerned with your joy. 
God is deeply concerned that you share in the joy that he himself possesses. God is not interested in saving and redeeming a bunch of people so they can begrudgingly go through the motions and then die. God is interested in you enjoying him and enjoying his grace and enjoying his people and enjoying his life that he's given to you, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of hardships, God cares deeply about our joy. You can obey God and still hate him. We want to have joy and love and gratefulness in our response to God. And actually in doing so, we actually find uh, our greatest purpose in life because that's how God made us. That's what we were made for. We were made for close relationship with God, to walk with him and to enjoy him, to enjoy his people and to experience that joy as a response to him. So as we look at this Psalm today that serves as the foundation for much of our uh, next uh, chunk of Hebrews that we're gonna look at, I want you to see this idea of the heart behind why we worship, why we obey why we worship coming from that heart of joy. So Psalm 95, let's look at these verses together. Psalm 95 starts out with a call to worship. It literally says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. It's an invitation. Uh, let me just say this. I would like to invite you and encourage you to try to make uh, punctuality to church a priority. And, and don't hear this from any sort of legalistic sort of sense, but we begin our time with singing for a reason. We begin our time of, with singing because it's a biblical thing. It's a, a great way for us to express, wow, God, you have loved us, you have cared for us, you have saved us. And so I encourage you, it's great to come and, and chat with people. Come 10 minutes early. Visit with people, get your kids checked in, grab coffee, and then be ready to start out our time together singing and worshiping Jesus because he's worth it, amen? So don't hear that in a legalistic heart. If you're running late, nobody's gonna be shaming you. Well, maybe Pastor Shane will, but nobody else will. I'm just kidding, <clears throat> a little bit. But it says, oh, come. I'll fix that for the 5 p.m. service. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Making noise is biblical, being able to sing and celebrate. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. You, you get the idea that this should just be something that, that is gonna attract people's attention. What are they doing? I'm just worshiping God in my heart. No, we're making a joyful noise. Why? Now here's the reason, verse three. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, lowercase g, gods. Lots of uh, people, things, ideas, spirits want to vie for the place of God, for, vie for the place of most important. Our God, the true God, the God of the Bible is a great king above all of them. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. He made the world. Have you been amazed by nature lately? Have you seen how big and powerful the mountains are and the seas are? God made them. It's in his hand. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. I was reading an article this week that scientists believe they've made a discovery that there is below the crust of the earth, there is a second ocean of water hiding out, and there's so much water that it would fill our current oceans two or three times over, and if it was to actually get out, the only places that you'd be able to see would be the very tip tops of the tallest mountains. It's almost like God's just showing off. 
Look at how amazing his creation is. Look at how wonderful his, the, the, the world that he has created is. We should worship him because he's so great and powerful. Then, verse six, it changes. It calls us to worship again. But the reason is different. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now it moves from let's worship God because his creation is so great. It says, let's worship God because we belong to him and he belongs to us. Again, the Christian faith is not a series of rules to follow. The Christian life is not a set of principles to live by. There are some rules, there are some principles, but at its heart, the Christian life is a relationship with the one true living God. And so we're called to worship because we have relationship with him. We're like sheep. That's not a particularly complimentary term. Sheep get lost. Sheep fall over. Sheep get eaten by wild animals. But he's our good shepherd who leads us, protects us, guides us, feeds us. Let's worship him because of that. Now, we have reached the middle point of this psalm. I don't know if a few minutes ago when we, when we stood and read this psalm together, I don't know if you noticed a bit of an abrupt shift halfway through the psalm. Do you guys notice a little bit of a, a tone change? Right now it's been all happy, right? Let's worship God. Let's sing. Joyful noise. 7B, continuing on. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your, what's the word, Sound City? Hearts. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed, that's a strong word. I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And that's the end of the psalm. And everyone said, wow, that's a bit of a downer. You know, this uh, Psalm 95, if you go into certain church traditions, they have prayer books or they have, you know, liturgy where they, they read psalms. Uh, what I found is that this psalm, the first half, that call to worship is used in almost every single one of them. Second half gets omitted pretty often. <laughs> Not a lot of people putting the loathed that generation passage in their morning call to worship. We tend to want to skip over passages like this, but there's something very important for us to hear. The Bible says in, in 1 Timothy that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. So we're going to go there, Sound City. What is, what is he talking about? Why is he talking about worshiping God and then all of a sudden, uh, did he have just an ADD moment? Did he just get distracted? Did he uh, just have a, a bone to pick and needed to vent about something? Or is there something deeper and more serious going on there? Let's do this. If you have your Bible, this is what I like to call a, a Bible Safari Sunday. So go to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, these words, uh, Meribah and Massa, are clues for us. And what we're going to see is we're actually going to see a very bad day for God's people. Actually, what we're going to see is we're going to see two bad days for God's people. And the first one comes in Exodus 17. This is what the psalmist is referring to. Exodus 17, a little bit of context. The people have recently come out of slavery in Egypt. 
They've passed through the waters of the Red Sea. The, the waters of the Red Sea have destroyed the Pharaoh and all his armies. And now they're in the wilderness and they're starting to march around a little bit. This is very early in their journey. It says this, all the congregation of the people of Israel, maybe, maybe as many as a couple million people, moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. And that sin right there is a Hebrew word. It doesn't necessarily mean sin the way that we usually talk about sin. It's just a coincidence. According to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now question, is that a legitimate problem? Is that a legitimate concern? Yes, you're in the desert. There's a large group of people. You need water to drink. It's not wrong to say, hey, we probably need some water. But look at the way that the people of Israel approached this. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. You guys get the idea of maybe kind of a, an angry tone, a bit of a finger pointing, not really asking or, or hey, you know, I can imagine, you know, hey, God's done all these miracles for us. I don't see any water now. I know he'll take care of us. Where, where do you think we're going to get water? Should we pray? No, it's Moses, give us water. I think the finger's pointing and everything. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us? and our children, and our livestock with thirst. Do you think Moses was taken aback by that comment? Oh yes, that was my plan the whole time. Stand up to the most powerful king in the known world, go through all manner of hardship and craziness just so I could get you out here in the desert to kill you. Yes. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They're so mad, they're ready to kill him. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. I just want to pause and highlight the mercy and the grace of our God. Here is a group of people that have quarreled, grumbled, willing to do violence, finger pointing, accusation, and God meets them right there. I'm gonna show them grace. I'm gonna give them water to drink. Is our God so good, so gracious? And that's really good news uh, because some of us may be prone to some of the same sinful attitudes. I've heard, none of us, obviously. I've just heard of some Christians. I'm being sarcastic, by the way. That's one of my love languages, if you didn't know. God is gracious. Water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah. There's our words. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is a bad day. It's a bad day. Not a good day for God's people. But God met them in mercy and God met them in grace. He says, despite your sinfulness, I'm going to treat you better than you deserve because that's the character of our God. Now, this is the first time in the story where we see these words, Massa and Meribah, these, these clues that come from the Psalm, but there's another story. There's another time 
where a very similar situation happens. In fact, it's so similar that some, some uh, Bible scholars think they might even be the same story. I do not. I agree with the scholars that say these are two different stories because there's a lot of uh, differences about the geography, etc. I actually want you to flip there. Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, starting in verse 2. This is later in the story. This is after Moses' sister Miriam had died. They're in a totally different desert, a totally different part of the wilderness. Uh, many scholars believe that this is almost 40 years later. That Exodus 17 happened very early in the journey. This happened very late in their 40-year journey in the wilderness, maybe 38, 39, 40 years later. Now, verse two, there was no water for the congregation. Again, a similar problem. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Uh-oh, we're, we're, we're going right back there. Same pattern, same antagonism, uh, antagonistic approach. Verse three, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we have perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. There's a scene earlier where the people had rebelled against God and, and God just wiped them all out. They're saying it would have been better for us to die like that rather than just dying here of thirst in the desert. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. I find it particularly interesting that they're accusing Moses of bringing them to an evil place. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Exodus story, God says to Moses, tell Pharaoh to let my people go because I want to take them out into the wilderness to have a feast. God's original motivation for bringing the people out was so that they could party together. To have a feast. God is happy. God is joyful. God wants to enjoy his people. And yet here they are saying, you've brought us to this evil place and we're starving to death. There's no feast. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. They went to the tabernacle, the place of worship, and they fell on their faces and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them to give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Quick, quick note, uh, Scholars, archaeologists, actually even uh, modern day scholars will tell us that there are places in this region of the world where there are semi-permeable rocks that collect rainwater over a period of time, over many months or years. And if you're trained and you know how to look for it, there are mineral deposits that you could knock off with your staff and water will actually come out of the rock because these, these semi-permeable rocks turn almost into like a water reservoir. So notice in the first day, God tells Moses, I want you to strike the rock. I want you to hit the rock and water's going to come pouring out. But on this day, God says, no, we're going to up the stakes. I want you to speak to the rock because I want there to be absolutely no doubt whatsoever in the minds of the people of Israel that I, the Lord your God, am doing a miracle, caring for you, providing for you. See the difference? So this is where the story goes badly. 
Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Uh oh. Moses' patience is wearing thin. When you start calling the people names, you know you're having a bad day as a leader. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now he's taking credit for it. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. What emotion might be conveyed by such an action? Frustration? It's almost like Moses is having a little temper tantrum in front of the people. You want water? I'll give you water, you rebels. Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with the staff twice. Water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I've given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them, he showed himself holy. Not only was this a bad day for God's people, this was a bad day for Moses and leadership as well. I said it last week, but I think Moses did far better in this leadership position than I or you or any of us would have done. Amen? He, he did a good job leading, but even here, the frustration of leading this hard-hearted, rebellious, demanding, quarrelsome people for better part of four decades, it got to him and he lost his temper. And there were severe consequences. He was not allowed to go into the promised land because of it. One Bible commentator, um, Dennis Cole, says it this way. Moses struck the rock not once, but twice as he vented his anger and frustration over this ever rebellious lot. As in previous circumstances of this kind, the rock was a symbol of God's mercy and benevolence. So striking the rock was, in a sense, striking out against God. Moses had damaged severely the intimate personal relationship he had with God. His actions were detrimental to maintaining of a reverence for God and his mercy in Israel. The trusted servant had fallen into the same trap as the many rebellious people he had complained about to God. Another not very good day. So let me ask you this question. After 40 years, would you say that the Israelites had a bad day and another bad day? Or would you say the Israelites had a bad heart? We all have bad days, amen? We all have bad moments. We all have frustrating circumstances that can get the better of us. It all comes out of the heart, but, but we can have one of those bad days. You lose your temper, you shout at somebody, you go back, I am so sorry. We, we, can, we can all have grace for one another in those moments. But the question is, if this is the description of the character of the people of Israel over a really long, really extended period of time, you start to lose the excuse, oh, we're just having a bad day. You have to be willing to take a good hard look at the heart and say, actually, I think there's some real deep character flaws deep down in who we are. The Bible cares a lot about the heart. The Bible speaks extensively about the heart. In, in our culture, 
we use the word heart to mean almost exclusively our emotions, our feelings, right? We talk about, you know, like Pastor Joe's favorite song, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion, right? He's not here to defend himself, so that's fine. Right, we talk about, you know, I, I feel it in my heart or I love you with all my heart. We, we talk about the heart as almost purely emotions. The Bible uses the word heart in a much broader sense. Uh, it really speaks to the totality of our inner life, who we are. In 1 Samuel 16, God's speaking, he's saying, you know, man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's, God's not impressed by our good looks, our, our physical strength, our height, our makeup, whatever it might be. God actually cares about the character and who we are inside. The Bible does speak about the heart as being emotions, like in Proverbs 15, 13, it says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. So yes, our heart includes our emotions, but it also includes maybe surprising things like our thoughts. Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's parallelism. Those, those are meant to be seen as uh, similar equivalent terms. The Bible talks about we, we ponder in our hearts or we think about in our, in our hearts. The heart's the center of our desires, the things that we want. Proverbs 23, 17, let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all day. What is it you want? The Bible also speaks about our will or our volition, our choices as coming out of the heart. That we, we, we choose things out of our heart. There's actually a verse in Deuteronomy 10, 15 where it says, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. This is really good news because it means that the love of God is not purely emotional love. That God does have a genuine love uh, affection, an emotional affection for his people, but his love is so much bigger than that because when you or I have a bad day, it means that God doesn't stop loving us. His love is a choosing kind of love. That's good news. That's really good news. Number six, the Bible talks about uh, our heart as being where our motivations come from. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is it that you treasure? What is it that motivates you to action, that causes you to do what you do, that causes you to desire what you desire? Do you see how the Bible uses this word heart in a very broad and a very big sense? It really is talking about the seed of who we are. This is the driver's seat. Everything starts and begins with the heart. And we saw multiple times in our passage, in our psalm, in particular, that the problem with these Israelites over a 40-year span is that they had hard hearts. They had a hard heart towards God. So what does this hard heart look like? So be in, in education terms, this would be a negative example. We want to learn from this negative example of the hard heart so that we don't follow. The first thing we see is that they have a wandering heart. Psalm 95.10, it says they always go astray in their hearts. In the, in the song uh, that we sing, the hymn that we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. That one of the indicators that there's a hardness of heart is that we wander. Another indicator is not knowing his ways. Psalm 95, 10, it's not knowing his ways, not knowing what pleases the Lord, not knowing what displeases the Lord. And I would dare say that the Israelites were without excuse because they were given the commandments of God. I don't think this was an accidental ignorance. I think this was a willful ignorance. I don't want to know God's ways or I know God's ways, but I'm choosing to ignore them. 
Number three, this hard heart looks like quarreling, fighting with one another. They're quarreling with Moses. They're quarreling with the other people. They're ultimately quarreling with God. Quarreling looks like a hard heart, fighting, demanding your own way. Number four, demanding. Exodus 17, two, it's just so shocking to me when they come, they say, give us water to drink. Do it now. Chop, chop, Moses, right? Hurry up, give us some water. As opposed to saying like, hey, what if we prayed and asked God? What if we, what if we, he, he's never let us down. He's always been faithful to us. What if we asked God for his next miraculous provision? Number five, grumbling. Exodus 17, three, the people grumbled against Moses. That, that word, it, it often makes me laugh because it sounds like what you're doing, grumble, grumble, grumble. It's, it's low in the voice. It's, it's kind of off by yourself. You're kind of complaining. You know, Moses probably got some water hiding out in his tent. He's not thirsty. His camel's got water. I see that. Share with us. Some, some, some filtered water and some artesian well water. Moses, just grumbling. No contentedness, no contentment, no resting, no trusting in the Lord, just grumbling. What I have is not good enough. Number six, assuming the worst. We saw this in both Exodus and Numbers. We saw it in both stories. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt just to watch us die in the desert? Like that was what Moses had planned to do. This will really get him. You know, gotcha, right? They're just assuming the worst. They don't have what, what John Calvin calls a charitable judgment. Or what 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know, believing the best. Love believes all things. They're just assuming the worst. Number seven, there's violence. The people were ready to stone Moses. Their, their hearts are so hard that one of the expressions is violence. We would like to kill Moses because of our anger and our frustration. Number eight, testing the Lord. This is tragic. Putting the Lord to the test we saw this in all three. We saw it in Psalm 95. We saw it in the first story in Exodus 17. We saw it in the second bad day in Numbers 20. They're putting the Lord to the test. Think about this. This is the same group of people who witnessed the plagues against Egypt, who witnessed the Pharaoh being crushed under the mighty hand of God. This is the same group of people who were led by, by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. This is the same group of people who watched the Red Sea open up in their very sight and they walked through on dry land and then they watched that same Red Sea fold back over the armies of Egypt and kill the Pharaoh and all those. And yet they're basically saying, prove yourself to us, God. We can't trust you. We don't believe you. This is, this is offensive stuff. This is offensive stuff. Number nine, perhaps most tragically, they just don't know God's presence. Exodus 17, seven, they said, is the Lord among us or not? They didn't even know if God was with them. Or in Numbers 20, they talk about you brought us to this evil place. God's not here with us. A hard heart's not good. A hard heart's not good. A hard heart is not useful. A hard heart can't be shaped and molded. It can't be turned into something. Yesterday afternoon, my kids were playing with Play-Doh and uh, the Bible actually speaks about God being like a potter with clay and 
molding us into tools, vessels for his use. And I was thinking about this as my kids were playing with Play-Doh. Inevitably, there's always that one cup of Play-Doh where the lid didn't get sealed all the way and they, they get it out and it's just a rock. It's like, oh, well, what are we gonna do with this? Not, you can't form it, you can't shape it. This is going to be a cylinder. That's what this is going to be. God wants us to have soft hearts, moldable hearts, because he intends to shape us to be used for his good purposes, for his good pleasure. Uh, let me say three things on this idea of a hard heart. The Bible would tell us that apart from Christ, we don't just have a hard heart, we have a dead and stony heart. Apart from Jesus, our hearts are lifeless, cold, immovable. And the good news of the gospel is not that God comes along and teaches you how to live a better life. No, the good news of the gospel is that God comes in and actually gives you a brand new life. That he pulls out our rock solid, cold, dead heart and he puts a new beating heart of flesh into us. That's what he says through the prophet Ezekiel. As he says through the prophet Jeremiah, Jesus talks about this new covenant in which we're gonna have new hearts. So if you are a Christian today, you have a formerly hard heart. You have been given a heart of flesh. If you have trusted in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, the one whose heart was perfectly soft before his father, the one who had no hardness of heart, who had no testing of the Lord, who had no violence, who had no grumbling or complaining, Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life that these Israelites failed to live, that we have failed to live, if you have trusted in Jesus, then you've been given a new heart. You're a new creation. You have a new lease on life. God hooked up the proverbial jumper cables to you and brought you back to life, you Frankenstein. You're alive in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. I didn't mean that to sound like an insult. It was kind of, Halloween was last week. I just was on the mind. You're, you're no longer living this dead, cold, heartless life. You actually have been brought to spiritual life in Jesus Christ. Good news, Christians. Now, that's the first thing I want to say. The gospel is all about a hard heart versus a soft heart. Number two, the second thing I want to say is even as Christians, how many of you know that there are still some areas of hardness in your heart that remain to be brought more to life in Christ Jesus? How many of you know, even as I'm reading this list about all these indicators of a hard heart, you'd say, yeah, I actually see some of these things still at work in me. Now, the good news is that the Christian life is one of God shaping us molding us, pulling out the pieces of deadness, replacing them with, with uh, places of just softness and tenderness, that God is working on us for the totality, for the entirety of our lives. How many of you are thankful that you're not the same person you were five years ago? Amen? Amen? God's working on our hearts. But the reality is until the day that we see Jesus face to face, there will still be areas, what the Bible calls the old nature or the flesh or the, the sin nature, the old man, all these different terms that God is working on us, changing us from one degree of glory to the next. Hey, you know what? If you're a Christian, you look more like Jesus today than you did last week. You look more like Jesus today than you did last year. Your heart is softer today than it was a year ago. Isn't that good news? God's working on you. God gives you a brand new heart. He spends the entirety of your life continuing to soften your heart, continuing to grow you in his grace, continuing to show himself more faithful, more powerful in your life. Now, the third thing I wanna say, however, is that we need to heed the very serious warning that comes from this psalm and that comes from these two passages. Think about this. These people 
spent 40 years walking with God, seeing miraculous provision of manna, receiving the Ten Commandments from the mountain. They saw the thunder, the lightning, and the smoke, and yet over a period of 40 years, their hearts did not change. So much so that God says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Do you know what that means? That these people who on the outside looked like they were walking with God's people for 40 years were not truly saved. They were not saved. They had an external appearance of walking with God. They had an external appearance of walking with God's people. But the reality is that there was no genuine saving faith in their hearts. Remember what I said at the beginning? God is not interested in our begrudging obedience. He's interested in our hearts. Now listen, I am not here to scare you. I certainly want each and every single one of you to experience the joy that comes from having assurance of faith. I believe that if you are a Christian, you can have joy and you can have assurance and you can know that you know that you know that you know that you belong to Jesus and like he himself said, no one can snatch you out of his hand. I want that joy for you. But I also first want to go through the deep waters of acknowledging the warning that we see in this psalm, the warning that we see in these two stories. As much as it breaks my heart to say, there are some of you who listen to me uh, and, and, and you come to church and you try to live a good life, but your heart is distant and far from God. Your heart is distant and far from God. There isn't a real shaping, a real changing, a real softening that's going on in your life. Now listen, we all stumble in many ways, the book of James said. First Corinthians talked about being changed from one degree of glory to another. We, we don't like perfectionism here at Sound City Bible Church. Do I get a loud amen from the people here? If you're a perfect person, you are not welcome here. Because <laughs> you'll mess it up for the rest of us. If, if you come in with an attitude saying, I've got this all figured out, I know how to live a righteous life, I've, I actually pretty much don't sin anymore. I, you guys think I'm joking? Within the last two months, I had someone say that to me. I don't really sin anymore. I know. I'm, I'm here too. I, I heard it. I heard what it sounded like. We believe that God is calling us to progress, to look more like Jesus, to grow in the fullness of Christ, not to say we've arrived and we're perfect. But I do want to say, if your life does not grow in holiness, at some point, at some point, years and years, God's so patient, there may have to be that hard question asked. Do you genuinely have faith in Jesus or are you just going through the motions? Now, I love you. I want good for you. I want you to have the joy of assurance of salvation. And we get that from asking these hard questions. I, here's, here's, what I, uh, here's why I'm so encouraged. My conviction is that God uses difficult passages like this, hard warning passages like this, to do something in the hearts and minds of his genuine people. And it causes us to, whew, I need to watch out for that hardness of my heart. And we follow him more passionately. That's my conviction. I believe God uses words like this all the time to help bring those who are genuinely his children, genuinely his people, into a closer relationship with him. God's so gracious. So how do we, how do we get this hard heart out? And how do we grow in softening our hearts? Well, first of all, I agree with uh, the preacher Charles Spurgeon when he said that 
We cannot soften our own hearts. Only Jesus alone can soften a heart. I don't believe that we can just make our hearts be softer. I think our general tendency as fallen sinful people is to just keep hardening our hearts more and more. It takes a work of God's grace to soften our hearts. But I want you to see something here. There's a very interesting passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where the apostle Paul reflects all the way back to this day in Numbers, all the way back to this day in Exodus. And he comments on that passage on the rock this way. He says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. It's a very interesting thing you just said, Paul, because I just got done reading those two stories in Exodus and Numbers and I did not see that the rock was Christ. It just kind of looked like a rock to me. But think about what he's saying. He's saying God met this hard-hearted, rebellious people in grace and mercy. Who comes in grace and mercy? Jesus Christ. Who meets the people and treats them better than they deserve? Jesus Christ. And even though the people drank from the rock, they drank physically of the water, it didn't impact their hearts. It didn't impact their spirits. They were supposed to get a picture of the grace and the mercy of God, his saving work, his redeeming work. And instead they just remained hard in their hearts. Church, the solution to a hard heart is to drink deep of Christ. The solution to a hard heart is to understand that every single good thing you have in your life comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. And as we partake of these good gifts, we remember that they come from God in his grace and in his mercy and we drink deeply of Jesus. Jesus himself used this type of language in John chapter four. He's, he's talking with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this earthly water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Drinking deeply of Jesus, drinking deeply of Christ coming back to him again and again and again and again, understanding that it's only in him that we find the solution for our hard hearts. It's only in him that we find the solution for the coldness and deadness that remains. It's only in him that we find eternal life. So what does this look like practically? What does it mean to, to drink deep of Christ? Let me just give you three words that I want you to remember. Three, I hope, uh, practical and helpful, yet so deep and profound words. And they are this. The first is repent. Repent of sin and hard-heartedness. Church, may the word repent never be a bad word in Sound City Bible Church, amen? The word repent is a joy. You know why? It means you get to take off that heavy backpack of sin that you've been carrying. You get to give it to Jesus. It means that you don't have to carry around the guilt and the shame and the weight of your sin and your flaws and your failures. You get to repent. You get to, you get to say no to sin. You get to say yes to Jesus. Not only do we repent, we remember the gospel and we remind ourselves of its truth. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. We all know that we're supposed to preach the gospel to other people. How many of you know that you're supposed to preach the gospel to yourself? When your heart wants to condemn you, when you are feeling weighted down by the burden of your sin, when you see areas of your life that are still hard-hearted, 
What a great joy is it to remember Jesus died for me. Jesus died to pay the price for my sins. Jesus died that I might have eternal life in him. Jesus died to take this heart of stone out and to give me a new heart of flesh. And then lastly, and my favorite part, rejoice. Rejoice in the grace that's yours in Christ. It is, it is not enough to just feel bad about your sin. We get to rejoice in the grace that we have received because God cares deeply about your joy, amen? Repent, remember, rejoice, repeat. <laughs> Forever, until you see Jesus face to face and there's no more sin that needs to be uh, dealt with in your own life, practically speaking. Repent of sin, remember the gospel, rejoice in the grace that you've received. I hope these three simple words will be helpful for you as you seek to continue to grow in the fullness of Christ, to put your, your sin to death, to, to say yes to Jesus. Because I believe this, this, if we practice these things, if we practice these as a, as a way to just drink deeply of Christ, I think instead of a wandering heart, we'll have a focused heart. One that, that sticks close to Jesus. Instead of a, a heart that doesn't know his ways, we will know his ways and we'll be able to seek to live lives that please him. Instead of quarreling and fighting, we'll be able to have peace and to speak the truth in love. How many of you want more of that in your homes or in your community groups? Less quarreling, more peacing. I just made up a word. Instead of demanding hearts, we'll have hearts that are asking in, in eager expectation and patience. How many of you know it's okay to ask the Lord for things? But not that demanding heart, a, a joyful heart, a heart of eager expecta expectancy. Instead of grumbling, we'll have contentment in our hearts. Instead of assuming the worst about people or about God, we'll look with a charitable judgment, we'll believe the best, like 1 Corinthians 13 talks about. Instead of violence, there will be a gentleness in our hearts. Instead of testing the Lord, you gotta prove yourself, God, we'll trust him, even when things don't seem to be going how we thought they should. We'll trust in the Lord. And then instead of ignoring God's presence, we'll know God's presence. We'll know God's presence as we repent and remember and rejoice. We'll be able to have our hearts softer, our hearts more full of joy, our hearts worshiping God. We'll be more obedient and we'll be happier than we ever were before. I truly believe that. I truly believe that our greatest joy comes in a place of, of really walking with God closely. I really believe that. That's how you were meant to live. We get deceived by the fleeting pleasures of sin. God's so much better. So, in light of that, how's your heart? How's your heart today? How's your heart this month? How's your heart this year? I want to encourage you to respond now. We're going to respond first through the giving of our tithes and offerings. So I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward if they would. I say this often, God loves what kind of giver? A cheerful one. You guys, this is an opportunity for you to joyfully part with, and I mean this seriously, what could be likely a God in your own life. This is an opportunity to worship the one true God with your money. So no guilt, no arm twisting. This is just an opportunity for you to joyfully respond and worship the one who's given us everything. And while they're collecting the offering, if you need information about how to text to give or how to give online, that's in your weekly handout that you receive. Let's go over a few discussion questions, things to talk about this week in our community groups and in our homes. Number one, where is your obedience of Jesus marked by joy? And where is your obedience lacking joy? Let's just dive right in, right? 
I want you to look, where, where are places in your heart that you're encouraged? You are obeying Jesus because you are enjoying him in greater measure, but where might you be lacking in joy? Of the nine markers of a hard heart, which ones do you tend to see in yourself and what's God asking you to do about it? All of these, by the way, will be on the website if you didn't write down what those nine were. Number three, what are some ways that God has softened your heart over the time that you've walked with him and how can we encourage one another with what we see in each other's lives? You, you, especially those of you who tend to be more fearful or, or maybe you, you tend to just see the worst in yourself, you need God's people around you to encourage you and say, you know, you used to be a real jerk, but you're not so much anymore. That's not a good example, but, but you know what I mean, right? Like, like I see, yeah, I see God working in you. Do better than that. That was a bad example. Just going with a negative example theme on the day. Number four, what are some ways that you personally drink deeply of Christ, that you love to drink deeply of him and how can we encourage one another in this pursuit? Maybe there are some ways that, that you've, you've grown in just being able to repent and remember and, and rejoice. Ways that you uh, have experienced that personally. Share that with others in your group. Also some things to pray about. Pray for soft hearts, for yourself, for all of us as a church family. Pray that our obedience would be marked by joy. And pray that our joy in Jesus would be attractive to those who don't yet know him. There's nothing more beautiful to an outside watching world than a bunch of happy, joyful Christians. What a testimony of the work of God. Because the world is a sad place and a miserable place in many ways. And yet God is, is bringing to life the joy of his kingdom in his people. And we can share that with others. We're gonna respond through a celebration of the Lord's table at communion. We remember that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was poured out. And today as you eat and as you drink of this bread and wine, I pray that you would do so remembering that Jesus Christ is the living water. We drink from him. And as we take this bread and, and drink from this cup today, I pray that you would even ask God to soften your heart in greater measure, that you would receive his grace at the table today. And we're gonna sing. Elizabeth and the team are going to lead us in some songs of celebration, songs that speak about our hearts. Song that I love the line in this first one, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It says, tune my heart like a guitar, like tune my heart to sing thy grace. My heart goes out of tune. and God's going to tune us up. And so I encourage you to sing joyfully, sing loudly, lift your voices in worship of Jesus. Let's stand together, church, and I'll pray. And we'll begin our time of response. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that you take hearts of stone and you turn them into hearts of flesh. And God, we thank you that the Christian life is not now one of just dutiful obedience, but one of joyful obedience, one of joyful following of you. I pray for my friends today. I pray for my brothers and sisters. God, would you give us each a sense of anywhere in our lives where there is hardness of heart, that we would repent of it, that we would, we would remember the gospel that you died to forgive that sin and we would rejoice in the grace that we have. God, I pray that you would help us to um, more deeply rejoice in Jesus. Help us to sing now with great joy, like the Psalms call us to, to rejoice with a great noise of joy. We pray all of this for Jesus' glory and for our joy. It's in his name we pray, amen. Church, come forward for communion when you're ready. Let's respond to Jesus.